Dear God, I thank you for each person here, and Lord, we just are grateful. We know that you have a word of encouragement or challenge um, to just pull them forward and help them to mature in their life in this particular area that we're going to talk about of conflict resolution. Lord, as we look at our world, we see conflict. We pray for your people, Israel, and the war that they find themselves in. We ask for your protection and help for them. Lord, I just ask that you would open our eyes to the truth in our relationships and help us to be peacemakers. Lord, this is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. If it helps you, there is an outline in your bulletin. Uh, If that's your learning style, I encourage you to get that out. So we're going to talk about resolving personal conflict today. And I don't know all of your stories, but here's what I do know. I know that you have had in your life, or at some point you're going to have in your life, relational conflict. It's just part of life. It's without a shadow of a doubt. Even if you've been a Christian a long time, conflict still pops up, it's It's part of what happens. Even among strong Christians, in Philippians chapter 4, we see the Apostle Paul talking about two women who were co-workers. These are mature women in the faith. Uh, He counted on them. And I mean, imagine this, getting your name put in Scripture. Hey, you two, get along. (laughs) That's kind of rough. But he calls them out on this. And the reality is we all have moments. We all have messes. We all have relational brokenness in our lives at one time or another. Robert Peterson says this, he says, The unwounded life bears no resemblance to Jesus. And Jesus experienced relational conflict, just like we do. Now, what I'm going to talk about today, because there are some distinctions in Scripture, what I'm going to talk about today are kind of your garden variety sinners, Um, The scripture also talks about the wicked and also talks about the evil, those who are evil. Uh, Those are kind of different categories, and there's some some other scriptural principles that apply. I still think a lot of what I say today would apply, but you still have to um, go, and that'd be a different message, and we we can look at that. But your typical person, these principles are very helpful as you try to resolve conflict in your life. Now, the reality is we all have moments where someone offends us, and the path of offense and revenge, uh, retaliation, is an ugly one. There's a beautiful story in uh, the Old Testament uh, where we see a very dark response to offense, and that's King Saul, and a beautiful response, the future king at the time, David. And Saul, he had become king. He was a good man from all that we know about him at the beginning of his kingship. And here he is, and there's this moment where they're coming back from a campaign, a military campaign, and some of the women begin to sing, they begin to chant, Saul has slain his thousands, and so he puffs up, his head gets bigger. And then the second chorus is, and David, his tens of thousands. And all of a sudden... Saul takes offense. Saul becomes angry and jealous and envious, and he turns on David. David is a friend. David is an ally. David, um, he becomes his, he had become his son-in-law. He's family. And yet Saul lets bitterness 
and anger and offense grow in his heart. He lets it fester, and he ends up actually trying to kill David multiple times. He ends up, in essence, creating a civil war between him and David. And, and he, he goes so far as one time these, these, this priest helps David, you know, innocently enough, doesn't really even know what's happening between Saul and David. And Saul basically orders the execution, the murder of 85 innocent priests because one helped David a little bit. And then they put the whole town to the sword. So that's every man, woman, and child. Um, And that's how far and how deep and how dark and how horrifying offense and resentment and revenge took King Saul. Now, I know that's a radical example. But on the other side, you see David. And David, even though chased and hunted by Saul, when given the opportunity to take Saul's life, he, he doesn't. When given the opportunity, he, he resists that temptation for revenge, and he will not injure, will not hurt, will not kill the Lord's anointed, and he really does try to live with great integrity when it comes to this. When, even when Saul dies eventually, he dies in battle and tries to take his own life and a soldier finishes him off. But when he, he dies, David still treats his name with honor. He expects Israel to mourn the loss of Saul. And it really is remarkable how David responds. He takes the peacemaker path. And it's not that they were reconciled. It's not that it's this beautiful, happy ending between them. But David was a man after God's own heart He shares God's peacemaking DNA, and we should as well. Now, I want to make a statement that I believe intellectually, emotionally, I'm not quite there always. I think you might agree. And that is that conflict is an opportunity. Conflict is an opportunity. Now, I don't know about you. I hate conflict, despise it. If I can avoid it in good conscience, I will. But conflict is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to live differently. It's an opportunity for us to bring glory to God in our lives in really sticky, difficult situations. We are followers of Jesus Christ who calls himself the Prince of Peace. And he says, blessed are the peacemakers, that we are the sons and daughters of God if we exhibit that DNA. And so I want to give you some principles today if you have some relational conflict in your life. And like I said, maybe you don't at this moment, but it's probably coming. I know. I should probably write for Hallmark, but, you know, that's, that's a little dark. But, but these are principles that will help you. The first is take the initiative. Take the initiative. It is easy to be passive, to avoid, to dodge, to not want to deal with conflict. Author Kurt Thompson once said, um, you know, a reason why we don't take the initiative is we feel, I don't have what it takes to tolerate this moment. That that looking somebody in the eye, confronting them about their sin, or saying you're sorry about your own, it's too hard. We don't want to do that. But we have to have the courage to have brave conversations, whether it's with a spouse, whether it's with an ex-friend, Maybe it's with an ex-spouse. Maybe it's with a business partner, we, a neighbor. We have to have these brave conversations. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 through 26, the first part, Jesus is speaking, and he says this, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. And so Jesus is saying, take the initiative. It's easy to be passive. It's easy to avoid. It's easy to dodge. But if we want to bring honor to God in this area of our life, this painful, difficult, messy area of our life, we need to take the initiative. Romans chapter 14, verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Great story in 1 Samuel chapter 25, the life of David again, where David does not do well. He is not the hero of this story. He has been running from Saul for years, and in that culture, he has, um, in his men, he had like his own little army, his, you know, militia, and they offered protection for the flocks of a man named Nabal. And Nabal was a wicked man. He was a very rude man. And David sent some messengers, and culturally this was very ex- expected and appropriate, sent some messengers and said, hey, could you, you know, give us a little help? You know, we, we helped you. Could you help us? And, you know, just ask for some food. And Nabal doesn't just say no. He insults the messengers of David and just really mocked David. And David loses his mind on this. I mean, he is upset. He is off the charts angry. He tells the guys, in essence, saddle up, grab your weapons. We're going to go take out Nabal and his entire house. David is seeing red. And even this godly man is just going to do something horrible in his anger. Abigail, who is the long-suffering wife of Nabal, and she hears about this and is like, what has my idiot husband done And she is like caterer extraordinaire. If you go read the story, she puts together this elaborate amount of food in a short period of time, probably had servants to help, I assume. And she goes and puts herself and her buffet in between David's army and her household. And she takes the initiative. And she calls out the man that David is. David, you don't want this blood on your head. David, we know you're going to be king. We know God has picked you. And that good side of David rises up and she makes the peace. Now the end of the story is that God then takes the life of Nabal, which David was fine with that, but he stepped back and he ends up marrying Abigail, which is interesting as well. So, okay. So, Take the initiative. Because so often, well, they, the, the problem was mainly with them. They should take the initiative. Well, they may never take the initiative. You take the initiative. Matthew chapter 18. This is Jesus speaking again. 15 through 17. Here's a process. So in general, if you have a beef with somebody, there's a conflict with somebody, this is how you walk this out. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along 
so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So now there could be a time where you need to, for your own safety, you know, in an extreme situation, take someone else initially and not go alone. So I'm not talking about that kind of extreme or violent or that kind of situation. In a normal situation with another Christian, because that's the context, another person who follows, says they follow God, you go one-on-one, you have a conversation. If that doesn't go anywhere, then you take somebody else. And if that doesn't go anywhere, then you tell it to the church. Now, that is not via Facebook. Facebook, everybody at Journey Church, don't do that. That's come to the elders or the pastor, and we will walk with you in trying to resolve this conflict. And so there are times where you have to take the initiative because certain, certain key, vital, crucial, important things are at stake. An example we find in Galatians chapter 2, two pillars of the church. We have the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Peter, he was the one really who took the gospel to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, which is most of us, um, first. And he was key in that. He knows that the gospel, that this new family is to make up Jews and Gentiles, and there's not to be a distinction between the two. But Peter kind of forgets. He's, he's been eating pork chops and bacon and hanging out with the Gentiles and having a great time, and he loves the Gentile Christians, potluck suppers. He's good with all of that. And then these Jewish Christians show up, and they're still keeping the law, which you can do that, but it's not required. They're still keeping the Jewish customs, and Peter steps back from the Gentile Christians and separates himself and just is hanging out with the Jewish Christians. And so this pillar of the church is sending this message that the real Christians, the best Christians, are the ones who keep with the Jewish traditions, which undermines the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul, the new kid on the block, the Apostle abnormally born, he did not spend three and a half years traveling around with Jesus, He's picked later, and he goes toe-to-toe with the apostle Peter, calls him out, and that confrontation, in essence, saves the gospel, saves this horrible perversion that could have happened right there at the beginning. And so you're supposed to, we are supposed to take the initiative because sometimes serious matters are at stake. So I have a question for you. I want you to think about this. Is there a brave conversation that you need to have this week? Second principle. When it comes to personal, relational brokenness, conflict, become as unoffendable as possible. We actually have a small group that just started a couple weeks ago. Carrie is leading it. And it's based on a book and video series called The Bait of Satan by John Bevery. If you've never read it, I recommend it. I found it very helpful. I read it a long time ago. And it's this idea that Satan uses offense, getting offended as bait in a trap, that our enemy wants to trap us in resentment, 
in bitterness, in unforgiveness. And he uses that offense as bait. You see, when someone's offended, Proverbs 18, 19 is a good description. A brother wronged is more unyielding than a fortified city. Disputes are like the barred gates of a citadel. You can see the body language when somebody's offended by you. You know, they're just blocked off. They're like a wall. A wall has happened. And we have to be honest about offended people. And some offended people are those who've been genuinely mistreated. There has been an injustice. And others are those who think they've been mistreated, but actually they were not. And we're seeing more and more of that in our culture. Uh, They even have microaggressions and all this kind of nonsense. So Proverbs chapter 26, verse 20 says this, Without wood, a fire goes out. Without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. We want to be people that don't add wood to the fire. once read a leadership book by John Maxwell, and he said, Look, when there's a quarrel, when there's a conflict, and you walk into the room, imagine that in one hand you have gasoline, there's this fire burning, and in the other hand you have water, which you're going to reach for. We want to be the water people. We want to be the fire extinguisher people. We want to become as unoffendable as possible. Martin Luther King Jr., the great civil rights leader, who had lots of opportunities and lots of reasons where he could have been offended, once said this. He said, forgiveness is not an occasional act, but a permanent attitude. I'm going to talk a little bit more about forgiveness in a moment. But this idea of being as unoffendable as possible, so much could just be let go of. Just don't even need to have a confrontation. The third principle is this. Put on your God goggles or put on your truth goggles. Look at this situation the way God does. Invite the Holy Spirit to guide you in this. How does God see my behavior? Ask yourself this. Try to get really honest, really humble. How does God see my behavior? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 3 through 5, Jesus speaking, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is one of the little places where we do see a little bit of the sense of humor of Jesus. He's like, really? You have this big board sticking out of your eye, and you go up to this guy and say, let me help you get that little speck. I mean, you're like banging him on the side of the head with your board as you try to do it. It's ridiculous. We need to ask ourselves, honestly, how can I take responsibility for my contribution to this conflict? Maybe you can't see your contribution. Sit down with a mentor and try to tell the story as unbiased as possible. I know that's hard. And ask the mentor, do you see anything? And maybe, just maybe, you only are 5% responsible for this conflict. Own your 5%. I hate to break it to you. If you think it's 5, it's probably 15. That's my guess. Because we have a hard time seeing our own stuff. And so whatever that is, confess that. Be as specific as you can about what you did. Acknowledge the hurt that you caused. 
accept whatever the consequences are and make sure that you ask for forgiveness. And those suggestions all Ken Sandy in a wonderful book called The Peacemaker that I encourage you to check out. And then we need to ask ourselves, so we ask ourselves, what does God see in my behavior? Then ask yourself, how does God see this other person? Because when we're angry, when we're bitter, when we're down the road of resentment, we have a tendency to look at this person and no longer see them in totality. We tend to see them uh, in just, they did this. They betrayed me. They lied to me. They cheated on me. They left me. Whatever it might be. They stole from me. How does God see this other person? We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So this person that wronged you, this person that hurts you, this person has something precious about them. They are made in the image of God. They are valuable and they matter. Despite the injury you've experienced. And so we need to try to grab hold of shalom, which is just kind of the Hebrew word, the God's word for his dream of the world as it should be, according to writer Asheta Moore. God wants us to have shalom, to have peace in our relationships. And so many of us have broken relationships. I love the Old Testament story of Joseph. I refer to it a lot in the book of Genesis. It's a long story. The essence of it is he's sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, spends maybe 18 years. God raises him up, puts him in a position of power next to second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And then there's a famine, and his brothers come, and now Joseph is in the power position, and here's these brothers who sold him into slavery. This is not a fight over the parents' estate. This is not, you know, you didn't treat me well when we were teenagers. His brothers sold him into slavery. And he has the chance to get even. Now, if you go read the story, he messes with him a little bit. Okay? Just a little bit. But he forgives him. And what he sees are not enemies, but brothers. Think about how powerful that is. Joseph looks at these one who sold him into slavery and he sees brothers. That's profound. Ask God to help you see this person, not just what they did to you, but to see the person. And also, we just had communion, which reminds us that Jesus Christ died for the sins of every person, all of humanity. Any who will accept what he did, and so whoever that is that wounded you, betrayed you, hurt you, that you're in conflict with, that person was so valuable, so important, they matter so much that Jesus came and offered his life for them. We need to see that. So the next principle is to listen to the person. Listen to the person. I don't know if you've had this experience, I certainly have, where maybe you have two children or maybe it's adults. And you're the boss and, and two adults come in or maybe you're a family member and two adults come in and they tell you about this conversation or this incident. 
and you listen to this version, and then you listen to this version, and you're like, were you in the same room when this happened? Like, it's so different, and it's so difficult to get through that. But it is so crucial that we listen to each person and listen to their perspective and to dig into it. We're reminded in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. I mean, think about your anger. I mean, there is righteous anger, but I think that's rare. Most of us, if we had to finish the sentence, you know, um, or finish the thought, I did something when I was angry and had to fill in that blank, it's not usually something we're proud of. It's not usually an action that we're like, yes, that was godly. Anger, when we are looking at life, looking at an incident, looking at a conflict through the lens of deep anger, it can mess us up. And it can destroy a reputation in moments. One author said this, and and I appreciated this, uh, an enemy is someone whose story you have not heard. An enemy is someone whose story you have not heard. And I've appreciated that because, you know, some people really irritate me or get on my, you know, last nerve. And then I hear their story. I'm like, oh. And you hear the level of childhood trauma or the loss or the grief or what they're going through right now and it makes a huge difference. And it doesn't fix everything, but it allows you to have a little more grace for people. We need to be good, excellent listeners. It is important that we train ourselves in this. There is power in listening. I worked for the crisis line and talked people out of suicide for three and a half years, six nights a week. And it is a profound gift to give a person a listening ear, to give them your full attention, to ask questions, to rephrase what they say so that they, they feel heard, to fill in some of the emotion words. Like, so what I hear you saying is when this happened, you felt disrespected. And then they may say, well, no, that's not it. I felt, and they may correct you, and that's okay. But you're giving them this understanding that they are valuable enough that you hear them. And that's a powerful gift. There is real power in listening. I was reading about a, a boss, and imagine a situation where you're the boss and you walk in and your employee, she's, she's supposed to have this paperwork done. You're going to close this real estate deal and it needs to be done today. And you go to her and is it done? No, it's not done. Her head goes down. And internally, you're like, why can't I get good employees? Why can't I get good help? What is wrong with her? What is her problem? And you just start ramping up. But then you hit pause and you say, well, you knew it was due today. Why didn't you get it done? And out comes the story. Well, my parents died several years ago. 
I'm the one family member that's left that can take care of my grandparents. My grandmother had a medical emergency last night. My grandfather doesn't drive. I had to do all that. I was in the hospital all night, got very little sleep. I can finish the paperwork. Uh, I should be able to get it done today. And all of a sudden, because you actually hit pause and you listened, doesn't that situation feel different? Doesn't the looming deadline seem a little less important at that moment? There is power in listening to people. I love a Cherokee proverb, and it says this, listen to the whispers and you won't have to hear the screams. If you are a good listener, you can often head off conflict when it's this big before it gets this big. My wife is a therapist, does a lot of marriage therapy, and she'll say it's not uncommon when couples finally come to marriage counseling that the wife, or one of them, has been, it tends to be the wife, has been saying things for years, like we need help, we're struggling, blah, 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 and the husband doesn't hear it. And finally, she's done. And now, oh, well, let's go get counseling. Well, now we're in a tough spot. Listen to the whispers, and you won't have to hear the screams. Be a good listener. Practice it in your life, especially in conflict. Proverbs 19.20 says, Listen to advice and accept discipline, and at the end you will be counted among the wise. The wise person is a good listener. The wise person is, is allowing others to speak into their life, even someone that irritates them. Another just practical tip on the listening is to, to look at them. We take in a certain amount, it's a very small percentage from our hearing, uh, much higher percentage we take in information from sight. I'll never forget our youngest boy, Henry, he was a little guy, and he was talking to me, and I don't know what I was doing, but I was distracted, and he said, Dad, he said, listen to me with your eyes. Okay, you have a point. Look at the person directly. Stephen Covey, in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, said, seek first to understand, then to be understood. When you're sitting with that person in conflict, the natural thing to do is they're talking, and you're kind of listening, but you're basically spending most of your mental energy figuring out what you're going to say. Turn that off. And just give your full attention. Actually listen to them. And then say, give me, give me a moment. Let me think. And then give your response. It's powerful. The fifth principle is choose to forgive. Forgiveness is at the heart of Christianity. I've already touched on this, but um, I love the story that Jesus tells. It's a parable. It's a made-up story to make a point. And he tells the story of, most of us refer to it as the prodigal son. A few theologians call it the story of the running father. But here you have this father, he has two boys, and one boy comes to him and says, hey, I would like my inheritance now, which is horribly offensive. Like, dad, I kind of wish you were dead so I could have the money. And in that culture, to actually do this, because it's land, uh, is the big form of wealth, you would have to publicly sell half your land 
or part of your land that the, that the younger son gets. It wasn't divided evenly between sons. Um, there's more for the older brother. Sorry, those of you that are, I'm an older brother. Anyway, but uh, in that culture, but he basically would have had to sell part of the land. And so this is public humiliation for the father. Like, my son won't wait. But he gives it to him. The son goes off. He wasted on wild, wasteful living. And then he finally hits bottom. And he says, you know what? I need to go back. Dad might take me back as a servant. And he goes back with his head down, a humble heart. And as he gets close, his father's out on the front porch. And we have this image. And this father runs to his son. Now, culturally, this does not happen. You do not see a patriarch in an ancient Jewish family running. Children, yes, not the dad. He runs to his son. He welcomes him back, throws him a party. It's absolutely incredible. It is forgiveness, grace, unmerited favor. And then how the story ends is then the older brother comes back and what's the party? Oh, your younger brother has returned and the older brother is out there grumpy and upset, filled with resentment because the younger one has been welcomed back into the family. He's choosing not to forgive, at least at that moment. His dad comes out and talks to him and it's a cliffhanger. There's a question mark in essence. We don't know how the story ends. And I think that's because Jesus wants us to think. He wants us to ask, God has welcomed me back. God has offered me forgiveness. And am I going to turn and offer forgiveness and grace to my brother? Understand that forgiveness is knocking down a wall between you and another person. Understand that forgiveness is not excusing the other person's behavior. You're not saying, oh, it's okay. You're saying, what you did was wrong, but I am choosing to forgive this. You are giving up the right to revenge, the right to get even, the right to trash them and tell that story over and over again. In the era of social media, that's a real problem. And so we are called to forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, the Apostle Paul says this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. And then notice the standard. What are we called to? We're to forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. The scripture is very clear. We are enemies of God because of our sin and our rebellion. We have all shook our fist at God in essence. We know better. We're smarter. A lie works here and I'm going to do it. We are enemies of God and God says, even though you're my enemies, I'm going to send what is most precious. I'm going to send God the Son. I'm going to send Jesus to die on a cross so you can be forgiven, so you can be invited into the family, so that we can have reconciliation. And so we are to forgive sacrificially. And so a question to ask ourselves is, how can I demonstrate the forgiveness of God in this situation? Proverbs 19, verse 11, the last part says, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Peacemakers are the ones that Jesus says are the sons and daughters of God. You know how you look at a baby and you're like, oh, he looks like his dad. 
People are supposed to look at us and how we handle conflict and go, oh, you're like your dad. You're a peacemaker. You offer grace, forgiveness. You don't let sin be the last word. You don't let a shattering hurt be the final chapter of the story of your relationship with your coworker, your neighbor, your spouse. We have to choose to forgive. I think we have to choose to forgive multiple times. If it's a deep wound, it's not going to just be one time. Yes, there's a decision, but there's a process to it. You have to choose to do it over and over again. If you had an abusive, horrible father, probably every Father's Day, you're going to have to choose to forgive again. If your spouse cheated on you and left you, that wedding anniversary date, you may have to choose to forgive again. Because if we don't, it festers. It's like a cancer in our hearts. So I've used David as a positive example. Let me use him as a negative. I've used him as a negative as well. David kind of could swing both ways on this. David had his own son turn against him, Absalom. He's leaving Jerusalem with his army. Their heads are down. This is a scary moment. And as they're leaving Jerusalem, and here we see the power of bitterness and offense and resentment, this guy named Shimei comes out which he is like stupid brave, but an idiot. He comes out and sees David and his army and starts throwing rocks and cursing David. Well, he's a relative of King Saul. So this is an old grudge because he's a relative of the king that David replaced. And David's men are like, David, we don't have to put up with this. We can go, you know, Take care of business. David says, no. And he offers the man grace. He offers him forgiveness. But years later, on his deathbed, David is having a conversation with his son Solomon. And in that final conversation with Solomon, David works in and he says, you remember Shimei? Solomon's like, yeah, you need to take care of Shimei. And so this man, after God's own heart, in many ways, the way I understand it, orders a hit on Shimei at the end. You know what that is? That is, I did the right thing at the beginning, but when it came up, I didn't do it again. Remember Jesus was asked by Peter, he said, how many times do we have to forgive my brother, and of course his brother was another apostle, so he might have just done something, I don't know. And he says to Jesus seven times, because he wants to look generous, because a typical rabbi of the day would have said three times. He says seven, so he doubles it, throws in an extra bonus because he wants the gold star. And Jesus goes, seven times? You're just getting started. Throws out a big old number. If it's deep, If it is like gut-wrenching as a wound, you're going to have to probably forgive multiple times. Corey Ten Boom 
talks about, she said, um, forgiveness for her, an image that helped her. You know, when churches used to have bells in the, you know, in the tower above the church, and they had a rope, and you could go ring the bell. She said, for her, forgiveness was, you know, if you're, if you're ringing the bell, you're, you're yanking on the, the rope, that's you just telling that hurt story over and over again. That's you throwing it out there one more time at the family gathering. And she said, forgiveness is taking your hands off the rope. And she says, you know, that bell will ring for a while. It's still going to hurt for a while, but it slows down. And eventually, as you pray for that person, as you choose to forgive again, eventually, you can begin to root for them. You can begin to actually have deeply and fully forgiven them. And there's different things you can do to help yourself. I was reading one Christian author, and she said she got lots of hate mail. And she said <laughs> for Lent one time, every day of Lent, she took, she had printed out all these emails that people you know, didn't like her writing. And she said, I got a, a, a book, Japanese book of, of origami. It's the, you know, where you make little, I don't know, birds, whatever, out of paper. And she said, I took my hate mail, and I made something beautiful out of it every day. And she said, it helped me to forgive. She said she wrote about it, and one of the guys who sent her a lot of hate mail actually uh, wrote her an apology letter, and she said it was beautiful. And so we want to be people who choose to forgive. The final idea is this. We need to love them anyway. We need to love them anyway. James chapter 2, verse 8 says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. I mean, I forgive myself over and over again. I give myself one more chance. Love them anyway. Dr. John Townsend says of love, it's seeking and doing the best for another. Generally speaking, the golden rule, which is this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, the golden rule leads to what many have called the golden result, which is most people will treat you as you treat them, but not everybody. Love them anyway. Offer shalom. There can be, shalom is this beautiful word of peace. Uh, Jewish people will use it to greet one another. They'll also use it when they leave. I was reading Rabbi David Zaslow, and he said this, what is more opposite than coming and going? Hello and goodbye. Shalom is the most radical union of opposites imaginable. Shalom brings together people who disagree with each other. And so we can be people of peace, people who tear down walls, people who navigate well relational conflict. Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount this shocking, even infuriating command, but he gives it to us and we say we follow Jesus. He says, Matthew 5, verse 44 through 46, but I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. See, there's that DNA again. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Is our love any different? Is how we handle conflict different? Do people look and, and say, Wow, they look like their dad. 
1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. The cross is the ultimate example where Jesus comes and offers himself to give us that forgiveness of sins. God chose to love us anyway, even though we were rebels, even though we were enemies. 1 Peter 2.22-24 says, Of Jesus, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Imagine how difficult it was for Jesus not to take revenge, not to call on the angels to just smoke everybody there. I mean, imagine... One time I was, I was a youth minister in, in Kentucky, and there's this kid who's kind of ornery, and I was telling the story of uh, the first martyr, Stephen, and I had all the other kids, this, this is probably why I'm not in youth ministry anymore, so I had all the other kids, he was Stephen, and all the other kids threw paper rocks at Stephen. So what does this kid do? He picks up the paper rocks, it's just wads of paper, and starts throwing them back at the other kids, which is what I knew he would do. I knew he would come through for me. So then we talked about, <laughs> then we talked about that Jesus resisted that, that Stephen resisted that, that this turn the other cheek, this loving your enemies is profound. It's not natural. It's only because you're empowered by the Holy Spirit that you can walk this out. Love them anyway. And I love the realism of the Bible, the Apostle Paul, Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, if it is possible. There are some people, this is another sermon, the wicked, the evil. There are some people that it's not going to work out. You may do all the steps, all the principles, and it's still ugly. But you know what? You want to look like your father. You leave the results up to him. Conflict, if done well, can be a bridge to reconciliation and restoration. And so the big idea today is when possible, build bridges, not walls. When possible, build bridges, not walls. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for each person here. Lord, I guarantee there's pain in this room those who are divorced, who still have just a seed of anger that is starting to metastasize. A business partner that's been cheated. A neighbor who feels like they've been treated unjustly, unkindly. Lord, help us to be people, channels of your grace and forgiveness. Help us to walk the path of a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons and daughters of God. Lord, we want to look like you. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Amen.